0: finish up that series. You can't really do a series about worship without talking about what Jesus talked with the woman at the well about in John 4. Um, So today we're going to do that and then next week Ashley will be here and then we'll start a new series. But um, before we get to John 4, I kind of wanted to set the stage for what's what's going on there. And to do that I needed to talk to you just briefly about eschatology. Uh, Eschatology is a fancy church word theological word from the Greek word eschatos which means the end and uh, it means the study of the end and when you say eschatology a lot of times people think about uh, you know the beast and the devil and and blood and the tribulation and a lot of scary stuff you know that keeps you up at night I remember when I was a kid reading the book of Revelation it was hard for me to sleep after I read that and uh, uh, you know, there's all these things that we think about, about the end, and, and uh, all that is important, certainly, but if you look at Revelation 21, 6, uh, Jesus said this. He said, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. So the end isn't the tribulation or even the resurrection or all these kinds of things. The real end is Is Jesus. What's that mean? It means that that Jesus is the thing that all of history is pointed towards. Everything in history is is culminating in this one person, Jesus. Now it, it had sort of a mini climax, I guess you could say, at his incarnation when he when he first came to the earth. But There's coming, a culmination of the ages, when he's going to come back, and Jesus is is the end of all things. Now, it's not like Jesus, you know, after Jesus, there's not going to be anything. That's not what the end means. It means that's the goal. That's the target at which we're pointed. It actually echoes Ephesians 1.10. If you have a Bible, you might look at that. Ephesians 1.10 says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, God might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on the earth, even in him. The end towards which we're headed is that all things are going to be gathered together in Christ. You might say, Pastor, what does that mean? To be frank with you, I don't think that I know. It's one of these Uh, stunning truths. It's maybe the most hopeful statement in the Bible. It's that that everything is going to become part of Jesus in some fashion. And I I don't fully comprehend, again, what that means. But I do think I know what one part of it means. And we're going to look at that and talk about that today. So look um, real quickly at Revelation 7. Verses 9 and 10, this is a picture of of heaven and what heaven is like. and In Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, it says, After this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all nations and kindreds and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palms in their hands, and they cried out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God which sits on the throne and unto the Lamb. What we have here is a picture of people, all kinds of people, different colors, different uh, ethnic backgrounds, different languages, and they're all standing before the throne of God worshiping. Everybody see that? Yeah. What we're headed towards then, if this, is, if this is the end, if this is the eschatological future towards which everything is pointed, where we're headed is a diverse body of people All worshiping God together. Can you say amen to that? What does that mean? Well, one thing it means is that in heaven there's going to be Catholics standing next to Protestants, there's going to be cessationists standing next to charismatics, there's going to be gracists standing next to legalists. Gracists is a made up term for people that are legalistic about (laughs) grace. There's going to be a a diversity of of theological belief and and background and thinking about God. And what are we all going to do? We're all going to stand together and look at Jesus. And we aren't going to be looking at each other so much, thinking about how much we don't like this person because they look different than us or they think different or whatever. In, in, In fact, what we're going to be doing is staring forever at the glory of God. And this brings a unity to us towards which we're all pointed currently. Now, how I view the future affects how I live in the present. And if I realize that someday God might put my mansion next to the people that I don't like, I might, I might try to reorder how I, how I live in the present. Now, I, I actually don't know that this means that we're all going to agree on everything. And I'm going to talk about this in, in a minute. A lot of people think that when Jesus comes back, what he's going to do is, is let everybody know who was right. And that's really what we want him to do. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm longing for. Is, oh, great job. You, really, you were really right theologically, Pastor. That tends to be what we what we think about. But do you know that, that in heaven it describes the throne of God and and it's um, if you listen to the way it, it, the, the description with the four angelic beings that revolve around the throne, it's uh it's not so much like set up like this where everybody's looking from one direction, right? Heaven is like it's like a circle, or it may even be like three hundred and sixty degrees. So there's Various angles from which you can view God. Even in heaven, depending on your vantage point, God may look a little bit different to you than to me. Now, he's still God. There's only one God. His name is Jesus. But there's going to be a diversity of perspective, I think, even in heaven. This is why I try to listen to people that are different than me. That's why God gives us apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Well, you know, all those people aren't like me. But if I listen to them, I can get a, very, a different perspective on the kingdom and what God looks like. How many of you enjoyed it when Marcus Wick was here? Marcus is a prophet. He views the world a little bit different than I do. And that's healthy. Thank you for the amen. All right. Okay. So, this is what we're headed towards. We're headed towards heaven in this this worshiping body of believers before the throne of God. Now, look at John chapter 4. This, I think, is the context for what Jesus is trying to say to this woman at the well. If you read this, this is uh, a lot of people say the greatest revelation on worship in the Bible. It probably is. It's fascinating. Jesus gave the greatest revelation. On worship to a a, a Samaritan woman, he has a uh, you know who was who was actively in sin. Uh, He has a habit of giving things of great value to people that don't deserve them, which ought to be encouraging because it's not about you and your works and all that. But anyway. In John 4, verse 19, so Jesus has said uh, to this lady, you know, he said, you've, got, you've had uh, however many husbands, five husbands, that's a lot. And, uh, and now, you know, you're living with somebody that's not your husband. And uh, a lot of people think that this next verse, she says, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. And she asks a question. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say, in that in, in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Um, so sometimes people will say, well, she's trying to distract him from, from her problems. Um, maybe. But if you notice how Jesus doesn't seem to make sinners very uncomfortable? Yeah. Who does he make uncomfortable? Yeah. Religious people. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I'm just being honest. I don't think she feels condemned in this moment. I don't think she's trying to distract him. I think what she's doing is she's had this question in her heart for a long time. Anybody have a question you'd love to ask God? Oh, yeah. And she's like, here's my opportunity. <laughs> yeah. This guy's a real prophet. I'm about to get my question answered. I've been worried about this for a long time. So I'm going to ask my question because I know how important it is. And so she says, should we worship on this mountain? Now, she's, she's um, a Samaritan, and she's gotten confused because of her mixed history, and she thinks that the Pentateuch is, is the only scripture, and so she thinks that the, you're supposed to worship on, I can't remember, is it Gerizim that they said the blessings, or is it Ebal when they came in? It's Gerizim, I thought, right? So anyway, when the, uh, the nation of Israel came into uh, Canaan, they had half the people stand on this mountain, Gerizim, and, and half the people on Ebal, and, and so they said blessings and curses. And so the Samaritans thought you're supposed to worship on uh, Gerizim because they didn't, they didn't agree with David and, and all that. Okay? Um, and so the Jews say, no, no, you've got to do what David did. You've got to worship in, in Jerusalem. Okay, here's what she's asking. Which external form of worship is most acceptable to God? Should we worship on Saturday or Sunday? Should we play instruments or not play instruments? Should we sing hymns or should we sing contemporary music? Does God like music in the key of C better or the key of G? This is what she's asking. What external thing makes God happier? Because I want to know the answer because this really matters to me because I know it's important, because I know that what really matters to God is some external religious ritual that I do. Mm. That's what she's saying. Yeah. Yeah. And Jesus, as he frequently does, totally subverts her expectations yeah. and says this. Woman, now that doesn't sound, you know, that's hard to read in our modern, he's not being, he ought to, it's more like milady or something, you know, it's not. it's not a, It's not a uh, harsh way of talking to this lady, okay? So he says, you know, kind woman, okay? (laughs) Believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither worship in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem. Worship the Father. You worship what you know not, but we know what we worship for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers shall worship the Father in the Spirit, And in truth, for the Father seeks such to worship him. God is the spirit, and they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. What's he saying? Okay, it's not about this external religious ritual or this external religious ritual. It's what's going on in my heart. Real worship is about an inward reality, an inward love for God that finds some sort of external expression. And what I think we're going to find in heaven is that that external expression may look different to different people. I've been listening to this, this music that uh, they did at One Thing a couple years ago, and it's like, it's like Christian reggae music. <laughs> and it's awesome. Like, I love it. But it's different. It's a different expression of worship. You know, I don't think, I don't, me and Casey couldn't pull it off, all right? We don't have, we don't have that background. But it's beautiful. And there's, you know, there's different ways to worship God. And, and uh, Jesus is saying, look, it's not so much trying to find the right way. It's, it's worshiping from your heart. Now, notice what she says. The woman said unto him, I know that when Messiah is come, uh, he will tell us all things. What's she saying? I know that when, when God shows up, he's going to tell us who was right. This is what a lot of people think is going to happen. God's going to show up. He's going to tell us what's the right theology, what's, you know, who was right, who was wrong. And he's going to correct everybody and set everybody straight. And Jesus says, I that speak unto you am he. <clears throat> okay, understand the picture. She's saying, I want to answer this question. Jesus is like, I don't care about your question. Here's a more important answer. And she says, well, but, but when the Messiah shows up, he's going to tell me the answer to this question. She's like, no, he, I, I am the Messiah. What's, what's going on here? Often we have what I call superficial concerns that hide the true concerns. This this woman thinks that what she needs to get is the answer to where she's supposed to worship. Jesus provides it with a far more important answer. He says, you're going to worship from the heart, but it's more profound than that. He says, you're going to worship the Father. He's saying that what you're really concerned about is, is this orphan spirit that you have. And what my real mission is, is to reconnect you with the Father. You know, when I read the Bible, for a long time I thought that Jesus' mission when he came down here was, you know, and a lot of people think this way. Some people view him as a sort of second Moses. He's, a, he's an additional lawgiver, and he clarifies what Moses meant and all this. And, and certainly he does give good moral teaching. How many of you are thankful for the moral teaching of, of, of Jesus? Okay, uh, so I don't disagree with all that. But if you listen to the way that Jesus actually described his mission, he said, No man has seen the Father except for me and the people to which I declare him. He said, I'm going to declare to you, I'm going to reveal to you the Father. Jesus' primary mission was not to correct all our theology. It was, re- it was to reconnect us with Dad. That's his mission. That's what real worship looks like. It's when I'm connected to my Father. It's not. It's not you can't tell based on what the outward liturgy looks like. Everyone has a liturgy. You know, we have a liturgy. I, you know, you say, well, we're, we're not a liturgical church or a contemporary church, which we are, but it's like liturgy is just the order of worship. It's just the way you do things. Okay, we don't like that word in, in non denominational, you know, print Protestantism, but we all, you know, we all have a way of worshiping God. But the real issue is our, it's not so much how we worship, but who? And the who is the Father. And so I've just been meditating on this this week, and, and I've just been thinking about this reality that when, when I didn't know the Father very well, and I didn't, I didn't have what I would consider, I mean, I knew God and stuff, but before I really had a revelation of the Father's love for me, the way that I dealt with all the anxiety of, of life was by having what I would call rigid theology. So we have all these anxieties about, you know, life is confusing, right? How many of you, I mean, there's, there's hard stuff in life that we have to, that we have to deal with. And um, what I found was, is that the way I would deal with all that anxiety was to have a, a theological answer for all of it. And I'm not saying there's a problem with that. It's important to get our questions answered. How many of you agree with that? And so I'm all for... You know, seeking answers and, and this sort of thing. But what I've found is that the more secure I grow in my relationship with my Father, the less I need answers to certain questions because because that's not where my security is. Amen. It's just not. My faith is in my Father, not my theology. doesn't mean I don't pursue good theology. I do. If you come to church here, I mean, we teach the Bible we try to bring correction and try to explain things and understand stuff but I'll be the first to tell you I don't understand everything but that doesn't stress me out anymore it used to but what makes me comfortable in mystery is is what Liz was saying it's the embrace of the father's arms not knowing all the answers so when you, when you uh, have, to, have to have sort of a rigid way of thinking about the world, it, it causes us to devolve into sectarianism, where I'm worshiping at a particular mountain and you're worshiping at another mountain, right? And I'm, I tend to be afraid of the people on the other mountain because they think different than me. And where are we headed? Towards the unification of the mountains. So I need to I need to learn not to be afraid of my Catholic brothers and sisters. Right. Or my, you know, I, and I strongly I strongly disagree with cessationism. I think it's the worst thing that happened to the, the, the Protestant church. But I need to love and honor my cessationist brothers and sisters. So I don't need to I don't need to be sectarianist about about things, okay? Now, you're all gonna, we're all going to end up worshiping somewhere with people that are similar to us. I mean, if you hate everything I say, I think it's going to be hard for you to come to church here. You know? No, I mean, I, I'm happy for you. If you disagree, i love you to come here if I'm just being real, right? But, but if I'm worshiping the Father and not some kind of formula, I don't have to demonize people that are different than me. All right. Everybody okay? So as I've grown to know that God is Father, I've gradually become more flexible in my theology. Now, what I mean by that is I'm not, it's not like I don't know stuff or won't teach stuff, but it's just I have more grace for people that disagree with me, and I have less anxiety about stuff I don't understand. All right? So, but I wanted to show you this principle again because I think it's it's just so crazy, the way that we have all these superficial concerns that we think are the real problem, and Jesus always brings the, the, the underlying answer. And I don't know that there's anything more beautiful where he does this than in Luke 15 with the story of the prodigal son. I know we're all familiar with this probably, but I wanted to read it to you again and hopefully help you see it with, with a different lens. So in Luke 15, 11, Uh, The Bible says a certain man had two sons and the younger of them said to his father father give me the portion of the goods that falls to me and he divided unto them his living and not many days after the younger son gathered together and took his journey into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living and when he had spent all there arose a mighty famine in the land and he began to be in want and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him to feed the pigs in the field. And he would have loved to have filled his belly with the husks that the pigs did eat and no man gave to him. So we've got a guy here who is in connection with a loving father. We find out his father's not a tyrant. We'll see that at the end. But he begins to get this idea in his head, which is the same idea that Adam and Eve got in their head, which is, which is maybe maybe the father doesn't actually have my best intentions in heart. Maybe he's hiding something from me. This is this nagging fear that that tends to drive a lot of people's behavior and it's like maybe I ought to go explore the world and see if there's something that I'm I'm missing Mm -hmm. and he he leaves the father's house and he parties it up and he has a good time for a little bit because the pleasures of sin are only for a little bit and then he's with the pigs and the pigs are like, in that society, I mean, they're, they're filthy. They have trichinosis. I mean, it's, you know, it's gross. He's at the low, you know, he's, he's feeding the lowest animal that you can be around. And he wants to eat their food. That's yeah. really bad. Before I go any further, let me tell you this. You don't have to. You don't have to be like this guy. You don't have to go and eat. You want to eat the pigs' food. Right. You don't have to believe that, that the father's not good and, and run away. Right. Oh. Okay. I mean, I'm just. I'm, I'm. Now, if you do, it's all right. God loves you. Yep. You can be like this guy, and you can come back. But, but you don't have to do that. So anyway, he's in a bad strait, right? All right, verse 17. And when he came to himself, he, he woke up and he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? I want you to notice this is his superficial problem. He's hungry. This is the thing he thinks he needs fixed. That's not what he needs fixed, but that's what he thinks. And that's okay because that's ultimately the thing that drives him back to his father. But that's not really what he needs. He says, I perish with hunger. And he said, I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. He comes up with this speech that he's going to give. You ever come up with a speech? You know, it's like a hard conversation, so you rehearse the thing. I've done this. You know, it's like i got to figure out what to say. Yeah. And he, he gets his speech down, and he thinks, this is, this is good. I'm going to humble myself. My father will accept me if I, if I say this. I'm not going to ask for too much. I'm going to ask for this. I'm just, I just want some food. And he arose and he came to his father. But when he was a great way off, his father saw him. What this means is that the dad was standing there every day watching, waiting for him to come back. And it says, and he had compassion on him and he ran. And he fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, I've been told, I haven't independently verified this, but one of the reasons he ran, and it, in the Greek it seems to be like saying he outran somebody. There was, there was this culture during the day that if, if a son went and did something like this and he tried to come back home, that the, the townspeople might go out and reject him. And if they did that, he'd never be allowed to come home. And so the dad had to watch so that he could outrun the townspeople, get there 1st telling you, Jesus is always outrunning the religious voice of condemnation. Now, he he runs to his kid, and he starts kissing him. Where's his kid been? With the pigs. He's filthy. (laughs) He's got stuff (laughs) all over him. This is the same. You understand, this is... This is what Jesus dealt with when he'd see a leper. You understand? Leprosy, it ate away your flesh. Digits would fall off. And what Jesus would do is he'd wrap his arms around the brokenness. He'd touch the disease. He kisses our brokenness off of us. And he kissed him. And the son, he starts to give his speech, like we all do. (laughs) And he's going to say, Father, meet my superficial need. Let's read it. He starts to say, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he's about to say, just give me some food and make me a servant. But the father interrupts him. Why? Because the real issue is this thing where he believes he's not a son anymore. Dad's like, look, I can give you all the food you want. That's not the problem. The problem is you have lost faith in the fact that you are my son and that I love you. And he runs to his boy and he says, now, give me the best robe. And put it on him and put a ring on his finger. And put sandals on his feet. Because my son, who was dead, who was lost, is back alive. He's come home. Amen. What's the robe and the ring and all this about? It's, it's him restoring, returning his identity. See, I think... I think that we have all these concerns, and I'm not, I'm not against the concerns, okay? I, I, I want to I know, you know, what the right theology is and all this. We spend a lot of time studying this stuff, okay? But at the end of the day, what I want to be is a church that recognizes we worship the Father. We may have a variety of dis- perspectives on certain things, but, but we can agree o- on that. And we can worship Him... And we can recognize, just like the song says, that we're child, that we're children of God, that we're accepted and loved. You know, I was uh, God spoke to me about this because I was uh, <laughs> my uh, daughter Eleanor, and my son Isaac. They were out in my yard, um, and you know, you got to go down these. Been to my house, you got to go down quite a few steps to get in the backyard. The kids are out there doing something, I don't know. And Isaac runs in, and he was like, "Dad, you you got to help Eleanor." I'm like, what's wrong with her? And he says, she's throwing a really big fit. I'm like, all right, I'm about to go out there and see what this deal is. So my daughter, I'm up, I'm up high. My daughter is down in the valley. <laughs> and I see her down there, and, and the, the sprinklers are going. And she's like wet in this sprinkler. And she's standing here like this, screaming her head off. And she's got her, her, leg is shaking, you know. And so I run down there, and I'm like, sweetie, what is wrong? And she says, my shoes is not good. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> all right, this seems like a serious problem. She's having an existential crisis. Yes. Anybody have toddlers? You know, they have existential crises all the time. And... And so I picked her up and, and I carried her up the stairs back up to where Dad lives. And I'm holding her. And I say, now, where is the problem? And she points at her toe. And, you know, it is not apparent that there is anything wrong with it. Just being real, I couldn't, I couldn't find a, a boo-boo on there. But she's very, very upset. And, and so what I did was I just held her like she was a baby. And I just kissed her head and I just said, Sweetheart, Daddy loves you. Daddy's got you. It's going to be okay. And she started to... <laughs> <sighs> 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 See, she had all this anxiety about, I don't know... She thought the problem was that her foot was messed up. But the real problem was she felt alone and disconnected from her dad. That's a pretty good word. I think I think that the problem facing humanity is is that we've believed the lie that God has abandoned us. Yeah. And, and sometimes we, we have all these, uh, you know, these concerns about things, which I, I, I get, like this lady at the, at the well. But Jesus is the answer not only to those questions, but to the much deeper cry of our heart. And what Jesus did on the cross and what he did in his death, burial, and resurrection, it, it shouts forever that we're not alone and that God's going to come down to where we are. Just like I did with my daughter. He's going to come down to us in our, in our mess and our problems. He's going to be like the song says, like the scripture says. He's going to leave the 99 and, and go and find the one lost, the hurting. And he's shouting forever, you know, come home, let daddy hold you. You know, I spent I spent several years of my life under the mistaken impression that God was far away from me. And uh, I I thought this for a variety of reasons that I've talked about before. But after I went through a bunch of stuff and I I got some revelation about the fact that God was still with me, I, I read the book of Hosea. And in Hosea, there's this lady, Gomer, that represents the nation of Israel. And she goes off exploring all these other lovers. She she's, uh, says, you know what, I've, I've had it with you, Hosea. It's like saying, I've had it with you, God. It's like Adam said. And she goes off and explores all these other, other things and... She gets this belief in her head that those other lovers, that they're giving her corn and wine and that they're supplying her needs and taking care of her and making her feel good. There's this one scripture that just wrecked me. I sat in my chair. I can still remember where I was at. It says, but she didn't know that the corn, the wine, the provision, the good things in her life, those came from me. Even while she was the prodigal, the good things in her life still came from God. And God said, God said son, I've, I've, never, I've never abandoned you. I've never been far away from you. Even when you were confused, even when you were in sin and bitterness and anger and all this, I was right there. The good things in your life, they still came from me. I just missed it because I was confused well praise Jesus let's all stand up the heart of the message is we don't worship just some random being we worship the father and he's a good father and he loves us I could have my prayer team come down here. I'm going to pray for everybody. If you need personal prayer in just a moment, you can come pray with a prayer minister. Thank you, Jesus. Father, I just, I ask that you would show everyone in here just how Love they are, and and help them reconnect with you, reconnect with who you are as dad more than ever before. Let them just feel your love wash over them. And let us become a united body of worshipers, consumed with the knowledge that we worship good dad who never leaves us, never forsakes us. And Lord, we thank you for that. We receive it in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. That's awesome. If you need personal prayer, you can come pray with a prayer minister. If you otherwise, uh, have a great week. If you'd like to meet me, I'll be right down here. My wife would love to meet you. She's in the nursery right now. She'll probably be out in a little bit. You guys have an awesome week. We love you.